Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study. This week, Dr. Creasy is preparing for the upcoming Logos teaching tour in the footsteps of St. Paul in Greece. The trip is full, and 50 fortunate Logos students will have an unforgettable experience. Dr. Creasy will report from Greece in an upcoming podcast, but for this week, as he prepares, we're bringing you something different. Dr. Creasy's introductory lecture to his course on Revelation. On the Greece tour, Logos students will visit the island of Patmos, where the book of Revelation was written. The full course on Revelation is available in the Logos online classroom, and it features 18 video lectures, classic artworks, written introduction and syllabus, knowledge check quizzes, and a lot more. Podcast listeners can now get 30% off enrollment in Revelation. Just go to logosbiblestudy.com, click on online classroom, and when you get to checkout, enter coupon code PATMOS2018. That's PATMOS, P-A-T-M-O-S, 2018, and you'll get 30% off. Now, time for the program. Here's Dr. Creasy with an introduction to Revelation. So welcome to our beginning study on the book of Revelation. Today we're going into lesson number one, which I've titled Introduction to Revelation, Part One. By way of preview, our task at hand is the book of Revelation, the last book in the Johannine canon, the final book in the Christian canon of Scripture, and the concluding narrative in the story of redemption. No other book in the Bible seems so cryptic as Revelation. No other book so extravagant in its symbolism and wild visions, and no other book so given to misreading and misinterpretation. From the second century through the fourth, debate raged as to its inclusion in the canon, should Revelation be in the Bible or not. It was finally accepted at the Council of Hippo in 393 and affirmed at the Council of Carthage in 397. As far back as the second century, Syrian Christians rejected Revelation as heretical. In the fourth century, the Cappadocian father, Gregory, viewed it as difficult and dangerous. Martin Luther held it in contempt as being neither apostolic nor prophetic. And it's the only book of the New Testament for which John Calvin did not write a commentary. In modern times, Thomas Jefferson omitted Revelation from his Jefferson Bible, considering it the ravings of a maniac. Frederick Engels dismissed it as no more than a political and anti-Roman work. And George Bernard Shaw thought it a peculiar record of the visions of a drug addict. (laughs) Yet, Revelation has always been and still is wildly popular. Although written nearly 2,000 years ago, Revelation still grips our imagination with its drama, its nightmare visions, exotic imagery, stunning colors, full-tilt sound, and over-the-top, blood-soaked violence. Yet, most who read Revelation come away baffled and bewildered, scratching their heads. What are we to make of this puzzling work? Well, in lesson one, we introduce Revelation and we explore its historical and cultural context. The illustration I have up front 
is the woman and the dragon. That's in chapter 12 of Revelation. This is an illuminated manuscript from 1086, AD 1086, in the archives of the Barugo de Asama Cathedral in Spain. And if you look at the illumination, you can see from the bottom right, you can see the red beast with seven heads coming up out of hell. Uh, we can see the woman with the child that's being chased by the beast. The child is being handed over for protection up on the top right. And we see people being dropped into hell uh, from below. What an image. So yes, indeed, Revelation or the Apocalypse of St. John has consistently fascinated readers for two millennia. And its popularity has only grown in our time. In 1970, Hal Lindsey published The Late Great Planet Earth, which foresaw the apocalyptic events of Revelation as unfolding in the 1980s. It sold 28 million copies by 1990, spawned several sequels, including Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth in 1972, the 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, 1982, and a movie, The Late Great Planet Earth, narrated by Orson Welles in 1979. And here we have Hal Lindsey with his three huge bestsellers. Not to be outdone, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins published the Left Behind series between 1995 and 2007. 16 novels that roughly follow the Revelation narrative and feature the adventures of the Tribulation Force as they battle the global world community and its leader, Nikolai Carpathia, the Antichrist. The Left Behind series sold over 65 million copies. It spawned four movies and three video games. Here we have Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and their first of the Left Behind series books. Now, as an author footnote, in the blue, I note to you that the average author royalties for hardbacks after selling 15,000 units is about 15% of the retail price of the book. I know that as a published author, that's what happens. Paperbacks, after 150,000 units, is 10%. So do the math. If the Left Behind series sold over 65 million copies, it generated for the authors around $100 million in royalties. Even the academic world has jumped on the bandwagon with the excellent scholar, truly excellent scholar, from Princeton, Elaine Pagels, publishing Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation. It debuted March 25, 2012, as number 10 on the New York Times hardcover nonfiction bestseller list. And here we have Elaine Pagels, a really first-rate scholar, a Harvard PhD, recipient of a MacArthur Fellow Genius Award, Harrington Spear Payne Professor of Religion at Princeton University. No academic slouch, Elaine Pagels. 
And her book, truly, I recommend it in our study of Revelation, and I refer to it as we move along. But you might think to yourself, wow, the book of Revelation, the end times business, is a huge multi-million dollar industry. So where was Bill during all this? <laughs> well, our dog says, I think he missed the boat. No, I sure did. But with the exception of Elaine Pagel's excellent study, the other works mentioned above, although hugely popular, offer little more than sensationalism and light entertainment, not a serious, credible approach to a major work of first century Christian literature. So to approach Revelation as educated readers of Scripture, which we're striving to become, it is important to remember that like all art, Revelation mirrors the time and culture from which it emerges. So by way of laying a foundation for our study of Revelation, we shall examine four things. Number one, its historical and cultural context within the Roman Empire around AD 100. What was happening in the Roman Empire at that time that was the foundation from which this book emerged. Number two, we'll examine the literary genre. That is, the type of literature Revelation is. It didn't appear out of nowhere. It has a long line within the apocalyptic genre. Number three, we'll look at the structural and stylistic design of the work. And finally, number four, we'll look at its message as our author intended it for his audience around AD 100. John is writing to a particular audience, indeed, seven churches in Asia Minor. And he'll write a cover letter for each of those churches, and that cover letter will accompany John's vision that he lays out in Revelation 4 through 22. So he had a specific audience to whom he was writing, and we'll look at the message for that audience. Now, we'll start with part one, the historical and cultural context within the Roman Empire around AD 100. Now, some of this, perhaps much of it, we've covered as an excursus going through the Gospels, an excursus on the Roman Empire, but we need to review it and add additional material to it. The first century Roman Empire was not simply Italy and parts of Europe, but rather the first century Roman Empire was the entire landmass surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, nearly half of which is in North Africa. By the end of the first century AD, at the time John is writing Revelation, the Roman Empire consisted of five million square kilometers, encompassing 40 different modern-day countries and as many different cultures. Its three largest cities, Rome, Alexandria in Egypt, and Antioch in Syria of today, were over twice as large as any city on Earth until the modern-day 18th-century Industrial Revolution. 50 to 60 million people lived in the Roman Empire around AD 100, and although commerce was conducted primarily by sea, if the empire is the landmass surrounding the Mediterranean, the way you get from point A to point B is by ship. But although commerce was primarily by sea, the Roman Empire built over 58,000 miles of roads, many of which still exist today, and when we visit this part of the world, we walk on those roads. 
to encourage efficient and effective commerce. The Roman Empire had a fully developed banking system and common coinage. Recall when Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes to Rome or not? He was in Jerusalem at the time, and he said, show me a coin. They showed him a coin, and whose picture was on it? Caesar's. That was common coinage. Jerusalem is way over on the far east side of the Roman Empire, but there was common coinage throughout the Roman Empire for the Roman Empire. And thanks to Alexander the Great, Greek was the common language of the empire until the fourth century AD, creating cohesion in a very geographically and culturally diverse population. Now, although a plethora of local languages were used, the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Now, unlike most other ancient cultures, the Roman Empire did not have a rigid class system, but indeed had a high degree of social mobility, both upward and downward. The Roman Empire practiced slavery. Overall, 10 to 20% of the population, depending upon the region, were slaves. But slaves were primarily war captives or indentured servants. How many people today, perhaps sitting here in class, are indentured servants or slaves to their own consumer debt? Many are, many are. Well, in the Roman days, if you owned that debt, the person worked for you to work the debt off. You were an indentured servant. Now, slavery was emphatically not racially based. Slaves could earn their freedom, that is, pay off your visa card, or be granted their freedom by those who owned them. Freeborn women were Roman citizens. They kept their family name, not their husbands. They could own property independent of their husbands. They could own and operate businesses. They could inherit property and wealth. They wrote their own wills, and they could travel freely throughout the empire. Any examples of that? Yes, Lydia. We met her in the book of Acts. Roman law formed the basis for the entire Western legal tradition, including that of Great Britain and the United States. And religion in the Roman Empire was an integral part of civic life, and it encompassed the practices and beliefs the Romans considered to be their own. Religions of other cultures within the empire were respected and protected by law. The Jews, for example, living way over on the east side of the Roman Empire, were free to practice their religion and to operate their temple in Jerusalem. Three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, a million people come to town. The temple operated daily for upwards of a thousand years, from the time it was dedicated by Solomon in 959 all the way up until AD 70, with a brief interlude of the Babylonian captivity. So Jews were free to worship as they chose, but religious groups could not foment civil unrest or disturb the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. As long as you were civil, as long as your religion didn't lead to revolt, to revolution, and to civil unrest, you could worship any god you chose. You had to respect the Roman gods as the Romans would respect your gods. So, of course, 
Like any great civilization, Rome had its share of rascals and rogues, heroes and villains, wars and brutalities, scandals and horrors. The New Testament mirrors a very brief slice of Rome's 1,000-year history, a time of great achievement, but also a time of great turmoil and strife, especially the last half of the first century, AD 50 to AD 100, the time in which revelation emerges. The second half of the first century witnessed cataclysmic turmoil, especially as it affected the Jews in Palestine and the emerging Christian church throughout the empire. Now our story begins with Julia Agrippina, one of my favorite bad girls of the Bible. She lived from AD 15 to AD 59. She was the great-granddaughter of Caesar Augustus, the adoptive granddaughter of the Emperor Tiberius, the sister of the Emperor Caligula, the wife of the Emperor Claudius, and the mother of the Emperor Nero. Now that is a pedigree that would make Lady Macbeth jealous. <laughs> Through incestuous marriages, imperial intrigue, and duplicitous assassinations, Agrippina engineered her son's rise to power. After poisoning Claudius, her uncle and third husband, her 17-year-old son Nero became emperor in AD 54, with his mother Agrippina controlling the reins of power. But very quickly, Nero's relations with his mother deteriorated, ending by Nero having his mother murdered in AD 59. <laughs> How about that family? Look at the photo. She's saying, that's my boy. <laughs> On 18 July, AD 64, the great fire of Rome erupted, destroying a large portion of the city. Now, according to the historian Tacitus, the fire raged for five days destroying three of 14 districts and severely damaging seven others. Both Suetonius and Cassius Dio point to Nero as the arsonist, who in fact wanted to clear a large part of Rome so he could build a new palace complex. Here we have a nice illustration of the great fire of Rome. Hubert Robert from 1760, we can see Rome in flames, and I imagine it looked very much like that. To deflect blame, Tacitus writes that Nero blamed the fire on Rome's Christians. Now, in AD 64, how many Christians were there in Rome? Well, I don't know. At the outside, maybe six, seven hundred, less than a thousand. Rome, the population of Rome, at this time was about half a million people, so Christians were a tiny minority. But what is it Christians were saying? They were saying that there is another king, Jesus of Nazareth, who is king of kings and lord of lords, who would return with an angelic army, overthrow the kingdom on earth, and introduce a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, where he would reign forever and ever. Well, to Roman ears, that is treason. And that's what people were saying and what non-Christians in Rome were believing. 
So the Christians made a convenient scapegoat for Nero. Tacitus writes, to put an end to the rumor that Nero started the fire, Nero created a diversion and subjected to the most extraordinary tortures those called Christians, hated for their abominations by the common people. The originator of this name was Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Repressed for the time being, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the original source of the evil, but also in the city, that is Rome, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become popular. So an arrest was made of all who confessed. Then on the basis of their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of arson, as for hatred of the human race. Both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome during this time, AD 64 to 68. The persecution ended with Nero's death. The Roman Senate had declared him public enemy of the people and announced their intention to have him executed. With that, Nero turned to suicide, but too cowardly to carry it out, he enlisted his private secretary, Epaphroditus, to do the deed. Nero died on 9 June AD 68, the sixth anniversary of his murdering his stepsister and first wife, Octavia. Following Nero's death, civil war erupted in AD 68 and four emperors reigned in quick succession. Galba, who reigned for eight months and was assassinated. Otho, who reigned for two months and, well, committed suicide, perhaps. Vitellius, who reigned eight months, he was assassinated. And finally, Vespasian, who reigned 10 years and died a natural death. Vespasian was, in fact, a very good emperor, a very skilled, very talented man. But imagine, the first three emperors in less than two years were dispatched through murder or suicide. Now imagine if that happened in the United States. The President of the United States is assassinated. The next three men in that office within two years were also assassinated or committed suicide. What would happen to the body politic? The country would be in shock. The economy would be in shock. The stock market would collapse. And that's the kind of thing happening in Rome. At this time of enormous political chaos, right in the middle, 64 to 68, in AD 66, the great Jewish revolt broke out in Palestine in the Far East. Nero chose the brilliant general, the future emperor of Vespasian, to suppress it. Fielding more than 50,000 combat troops, Vespasian began operations up in Galilee, and by AD 68, he had crushed opposition in the north. Remember, all the radical movements in Palestine originated up in Galilee. 
When people said, who's that? And the answer was Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, one of those radicals. That's what they thought. So Vespasian crushed the opposition in the north by AD 68. He moved his headquarters to Caesarea Maritima, the deep water port on the Mediterranean, and he methodically began clearing the coast. Meanwhile, the defeated Jewish leaders from Galilee escaped to Jerusalem, where a bitter civil war among the Jews erupted pitting the fanatical zealots and Sakari against the more moderate Sadducees and Pharisees. By AD 68, the entire Jerusalem leadership and all their followers were dead, having been killed by their fellow Jews. And the zealots held the temple complex, using it as a staging area for war against Rome. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Don't forget, you can learn a whole lot more about the book of Revelation by enrolling in our course on Revelation in the Logos Online Classroom. Just go to logosbiblestudy.com and click on Online Classroom, and don't forget to enter the coupon code PATMOS2018 to get 30% off. Okay, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. With Nero's death in Rome, Vespasian's troops along the coast in Palestine, proclaimed him emperor. He was truly a very skilled, very competent person. Support spread quickly, and in AD 69, Vespasian left Jerusalem for Rome to claim the throne, leaving his son Titus to conclude the war in Jerusalem. By the summer of AD 70, Titus had breached the city walls and captured the temple. And during the fierce fighting on the temple complex, the temple caught fire. And on July 2930, AD 70, the temple fell. 1,000 years of temple worship ended in a single day. From the time Solomon dedicated the first temple in 959, all the way through July AD 70, with the exception of the Babylonian captivity, 586 to 539, and a brief time during the Maccabean Revolt. Apart from that, a thousand years of temple worship came to an end, July 29, AD 70. The fire spread quickly to the city itself, destroying most of it. The Jews did not set the temple on fire. The temple caught fire as collateral damage of the battle on the temple platform between the zealots and the Roman troops. But once it caught fire and collapsed, the fire spread to the city. Tacitus writes that no fewer than 600,000 Jews fought the Romans in Jerusalem, and those captured were crucified up to 500 a day. The historians estimate that 1.2 million Jews died during the span of the Jewish revolt, AD 66 to 73. It was the greatest catastrophe in Jewish history until the Nazi Holocaust of 1939 to 1944. Catastrophic for the Jews. And we have a painting, David Roberts' The Siege and Destruction of Jerusalem, 1850, in a private collection. We can look at the painting and get a sense of what that must have been like. Now, during the Jewish revolt of 66 to 73, thousands of Jews fled Jerusalem and Palestine 
to other parts of the Roman Empire. Anyone who could got out of Dodge. Many went to the far west, as far away as they could get. In Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius was heating up. Located a little over five miles east of modern-day Naples, a short distance from the Mediterranean shore, Pompeii sits at the foot of a Soma volcano 4,203 feet high, a humpback mountain with a summit caldera surrounded by a newer cone. It is one of the most dangerous volcanic mountains on Earth, erupting countless times throughout history, and in modern times, erupting six times in the 18th century, eight times in the 19th century, and three times in the 20th century, the last in 1944. On several occasions, post-eruption ash blanketed all of southern Europe, and twice, A.D. 472 and 631, Vesuvian ash fell on Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, 750 miles to the northeast. Now, where was John in A.D. 70? Well, tradition says he was the leader of the church in Ephesus at that point. Ephesus? Wait, that's on the west coast of Asia Minor. Would John have known about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius? Yes, ash would have been falling on Ephesus. By the way, there will be five great earthquakes and volcanic eruptions in the book of Revelation. Here we have an aerial view of Mount Vesuvius, and it looks like a truly dangerous mountain. Now, we were in Pompeii only a month or so ago, and we had a very full itinerary, and looking at Mount Vesuvius, I thought to myself, I have to climb that mountain. It's only 4,000 some feet. We could do that pretty easily. I would like to go up and stand right on the rim of the caldera and look in it. That's going to happen one day soon. You wait and see. But we were in Pompeii and we had a good view of the city itself. But you know, never had there been an eruption like that of AD 79. On the morning of 24 August, a massive explosion occurred, blasting a column of ash and pumice 50 to 100,000 feet into the atmosphere at a rate of, get this, 1.5 million tons of liquid rock and gas. 1.5 million tons per second. Recent studies suggest that the energy supporting the column came from steam superheated by the magma. The cloud then collapsed as the expanding gases lost their ability to support the solid contents, creating a pyroclastic surge, a huge turbulent mass of fluid rock and gas traveling at near supersonic speed, releasing over 100,000 times the thermal energy of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. I mean, that's impossible to imagine. Six surges occurred over two days, dropping ash and debris at temperatures of 600 degrees Fahrenheit and reaching a depth of up to 75 feet, burying both Pompeii and neighboring Herculaneum. 16,000 people died instantly. 
in the surges, and thousands more from the poisonous gases, falling debris, and collapsed buildings. Nothing like it had ever been seen. Here is a photo of Pompeii that we took not on our last visit, but the year before. And you can see walking through the streets of the remains of Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius looming in the background. Now, why would anyone build a city at the foot of that mountain? I have no idea. It's much like when Mount St. Helens erupted. Remember there was a man living on the mountain who said, I'm not leaving my property? <laughs> he was vaporized. And we have, of course, a picture we've all seen many times, an entombed, ash-covered body at Pompeii, people frozen in time. Pliny the Younger gives us the only eyewitness account of the Vesuvius eruption in his two letters to the historian Tacitus. Here's a sample written by Pliny at Mycenaeum, about 20 miles across the Bay of Naples. He was on the other side of the bay, and he witnessed the eruption. Here's what he writes. Though it was now morning, a bright, sunshiny morning, the light was exceedingly faint and doubtful. The buildings all around us tottered. We therefore resolved to quit the town. A panic-stricken crowd followed us. Being at a convenient distance from the houses, you didn't want to be near any building because it would fall on you. We stood still in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The chariots, which we had ordered to be drawn out, were so agitated backward and forward, though on level ground, that we could not keep them steady, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea, the Bay of Naples, seemed to roll back upon itself. It, it withdrew from the shores. And to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth, it is certain, at least, the shore was considerably enlarged. And several sea animals were left upon it. On the other side of the bay, the Pompeii side, a black and dreadful cloud, broken with rapid zigzagging flashes, behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These were like sheet lightning, but much larger. Soon afterward, on what was a bright sunny morning, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea, the Bay of Naples. A dense, dark mist seemed to be following us, spreading itself over the country like a cloud. We had scarcely sat down when night came upon us, not such as we have when the sky is cloudy or when there's no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up tight and all the lights put out, this in mid-morning. You might hear the shrieks of women the screams of children, the shouts of men, some wishing to die from the very fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were now no gods at all, and that the final endless night of which we had heard had come upon the world. It seemed like the end of the world. Vespasian dies on 23 June AD 79. And his son Titus succeeds him to the throne. 
62 days later, Vesuvius erupts. Titus immediately organized a massive relief effort funded by large donations from the imperial treasury. And in his Roman history, Cassius Dio reports that Titus made two personal visits to the disaster area, one shortly after the eruption, the second a year later. And during his second visit in the spring of AD 80, another massive fire broke out in Rome, raging for three days and three nights, consuming large parts of the city. So it's AD 80, another disastrous fire. Although not as disastrous as the Great Fire of AD 64, it nevertheless destroyed a significant number of temples as well as public buildings, including the Baths of Agrippa, the Pantheon, the Dibratorium, the Theater of Balbus, Pompey's Theater, many other public buildings. In the wake of the fire, plague ravaged Rome, prompting widespread belief that the fire and the plague, not to mention the eruption of Vesuvius, were punishments visited on Rome by the gods. Titus died on 13 September 81, after a very brief two-year reign. Any Roman emperor who dies at a young age after a brief two-year reign, you do an investigation. The cause of his death is uncertain. In his Roman history, Cassius Dio reports that as Titus lay dying, he uttered his last words, I have made but one mistake prompting great speculation, of course, as to what that mistake might have been. Both Cassius Dio and Suetonius suggest that his mistake was allowing his brother Domitian to live after having discovered that his brother was plotting against him. In his Life of Apollonius of Tyana, Philostratus flatly accuses Domitian of murdering his brother by poisoning him with the flesh of a sea hare, a culinary ingredient favored by Nero in dispatching his enemies. Now, although universally judged a stellar emperor by the Roman world, Jewish writings excoriate Titus. He is, after all, the general who was in charge during the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. The Babylonian Talmud, and this is one of my favorite pieces that I discovered in doing research on Revelation, the Babylonian Talmud claims that in AD 70, on the temple platform, that Titus had sex with a whore on a Torah scroll inside the temple while it burned, and that his death was caused by an insect flying up his nose and gnawing at his brain for seven years growing to the size of a bird in the process. There he is. Oy vey, you say. Now, whatever the case may be, Domitian succeeded his brother as emperor on 14 September AD 81 as the third and last emperor of the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian Titus Domitian. Quickly dispensing with the republican form of government favored by his father and brother, Domitian believed the Roman Empire should be governed as a divine monarchy. Of course, with himself as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, 
Domitian proclaimed himself Lord and God. Moving the center of government to the imperial court and rendering the Roman Senate impotent and expelling those senators whom he deemed troublesome. Although taking his self-deification seriously, Domitian tolerated foreign religions as long as they did not interfere with public order and could be assimilated into traditional Roman religion. For example, Egyptian religion flourished under Domitian. Since the Egyptian gods, Serapis and Isis, were closely identified with the Roman gods, Jupiter and Minerva. Conversely, Judaism and Christianity were not tolerated, as both rejected the Roman gods outright, and Christianity proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth not only as divine, a competitor to the emperor, if you will, but king of kings and lord of lords who would return to usher in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, a treasonous claim to Roman ears. Consequently, in his fourth century church history, Eusebius states that Domitian severely persecuted Christians in Rome and throughout the empire. Eusebius writes, many were the victims of Domitian's appalling cruelty. At Rome, Great numbers of men distinguished by birth and attainments were for no reason at all banished from the country and their property confiscated. Finally, he, Domitian, showed himself the successor of Nero in enmity and hostility to God. He was, in fact, the second to organize persecution against us, though his father Vespasian had had no mischievous designs against us. Vespasian was a good emperor. Titus, by all Roman accounts, was a good emperor, but not so Domitian. Nero initiated the first state-sponsored persecution against the church in Rome, 64 to 68, limited to Rome itself. Domitian is empire-wide. Domitian was murdered on 18 September, AD 96, in a palace conspiracy. Immediately after Domitian's murder, the Roman Senate, who loathed him, proclaimed Marcus Nerva emperor and passed damnatio memori, damn the memory, on Domitian's memory. The first of only two Roman emperors to be so excoriated. Melting his coins and statues and erasing his name from all public records, totally eliminate him. Every major ancient source, Juvenal, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, Suetonius, vilifies Domitian as a cruel tyrant. Only Domitian's court poets, Marshall and Statius, have anything good to say about him. So clearly, the second half of the first century was a tumultuous time in the Roman Empire politically, economically, culturally, and religiously. 50 years see eight emperors, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Eight emperors, seven of whom met violent deaths. A persecuted minority within the Roman Empire, the emerging church became the target of two state-sponsored persecutions one under Nero, the other under Domitian.
Rome burned twice. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70, bringing a thousand years of temple worship to an abrupt end. Vesuvius erupted, and as the last eyewitness of Jesus' public ministry died out, a generation of oral teaching and preaching coalesced in the written gospels, in which one reads Jesus' own words. And I read from Matthew 24. When you see standing in the holy place, that is the temple, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Matthew adds parenthetically, let the reader understand, Jesus continues, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, if we were Christians, living in the second half of the first century, with everything that we've just described having happened in our lifetime, we might well imagine that we hear the squeaking axles of the chariots of fire as the four horsemen of the apocalypse line up for Armageddon. It would seem to be right upon us. So five questions for discussion and thought. Number one, why is it important to understand the historical and cultural context of Revelation? Because like any work of art, musical, literary, visual, it emerges from its own time and culture. It is a product of its time, reflecting its own time. Number two, what are some of the important historical events that contribute to the context of Revelation? The rise of Nero as emperor, the great Jewish revolt, 66 to 73, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, Domitian as emperor, we had a persecution in Rome under Nero, an empire-wide persecution under Domitian. We had fire, we had plague, we had earthquakes. All of this is happening within the lifetime of the people who are going to read Revelation. Number three, do you think John would have known of the Mount Vesuvius eruption? Well, if he were in Ephesus, he sure would. Number four, why do you think Christianity was so seldom mentioned by the ancient historians? because Christianity was a very minor religion, very small in numbers. By AD 100, we estimated, when we studied our gospel according to John, that in AD 32, on Pentecost AD 32, when the Holy Spirit arrives in Jerusalem and the apostles begin moving out, that by, what, less than 70 years later, how many believers would there be in the Roman Empire in a population of five to six million? 
I don't know, at, at most 100,000. So very small numbers. We're not even on the radar at the time. And number five, why was Christianity not accepted under the reign of Domitian? Because Domitian proclaimed himself Lord and God, and he didn't want a competitor. And the Christians were a threat to that claim. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget to go to the Logos Bible Study online classroom, enroll in Revelation, and get 30% off by entering coupon code PATMOS2018. All right, we'll be back next week with a brand new podcast. We'll see you then.